Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we read from Matthew chapter 18. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin! For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. There are several things that are repetitious in this chapter from other spots in the book of Matthew, but our primary teaching we see in this text is about forgiveness. Really, this is a fantastic chapter on what forgiveness actually looks like, so we'll take a look. It begins with the disciples coming to Jesus and asking who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're still having this battle amongst themselves, thinking again that Jesus' rule is an earthly rule, an earthly kingdom, wanting to know basically who's, who's the greatest, who gets to sit at his right hand and gets to be second in command. And he flips it on them, and he presents to them a child. Unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you turn, so repent, repent of your sins, become like children. This is a good spot for a family conversation. What is it about a child that Jesus is saying matters for our faith? Why is it that we must become like children in order to be saved? And lots of people have lots of different suggestions here often trying to focus on the positive characteristics of children, like how easily they trust and things like that. But I'm going to make the argument instead that this is about worthlessness. Bear with me, but think about children as being a parent. What do your children provide of value to your house? Does your three-year-old put food on the table? Does your one-year-old go out and work the fields to make that food happen? Does your six-year-old build the rafters and the support for the roof? They don't do any of that. They provide nothing of tangible physical value to the care of the family. And yet, as parents, you love them anyway. We love them anyway, right? This is the way it is before us and God. The child recognizes this. They recognize their need to be cared for. And they don't seek to boast. They don't come up to dad and say, I deserve to be fed tonight. No, they simply receive with thanksgiving. This is how we are to be with the Lord. We don't deserve any of his gifts. If we did, they wouldn't be gifts. Instead, we are to simply and humbly come before him with a simple trust to know that it is all by his work, his salvation for us. So they're asking a prideful question, and he knocks them down. The answer is, be humble. You bring nothing to the table. And yet God will save you anyway. Then he continues on with this child, much like he did back in chapter 10, verses 40 to 42, as he was sending out the disciples, that if you receive a child, one who has that simple, humble trust in the Lord, 
you're receiving Jesus as well. Because that simple trust is going to be shared. Children have no issue, like the littlest of kids, they have no issue talking about their faith. It's us grown-ups that struggle with that one. I guess it happens somewhere in between that we, we clam up, but our children can really be a benefit in teaching us that one. So same ideas, again, chapter 10. Then he goes into temptation to sin, starting with this millstone language. That it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck, drowned in the sea, than to cause a child to sin. This is not a small millstone. This is the picture of like the, the giant millstone that a donkey is used to turn in order to grind great amounts of grain in a mill. You're not surviving that. You're going to sink to the bottom of the sea and be crushed and drown, whichever happens first. It would be better. It would be more profitable. It's a, a literal way to translate the Greek here. Such a terrible sin it is to cause another person to rebel against the Lord. Remember that this is opposite what our purpose is. You and I are here to care for God's creation, to care for his people, not to harm them. He continues the conversation about causing temptations for others. Verse 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. He uses the word woe in chapter 11 when speaking against Chorazin and Bethsaida, that it's going to be difficult for them on the day of judgment. Seven times in chapter 23 about the Pharisees and the scribes as he judges them. And then in chapter 26, he speaks it of the one who betrays the Son of Man. So suffice it to say, the word woe is not a good thing, right? Those are all terrible contexts. You do not want to have Jesus speak woe of you. Temptations will come. It's part of the broken creation. But woe to the one by whom they come. This is a warning to us to not cause others to sin. So then he gives us a warning, a repetition of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, verses 29 to 30, that if part of our body is causing us to harm others, destroy it. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye gouged out. Better to enter eternal life crippled, lame, blind than to go to hell. That word hell is Gehenna in the Greek. Again, I, as I did in chapter 5, I encourage you to think of this literally for a moment. Everybody goes quickly to an allegory or a metaphor here, but If you were to cut off everything that caused you to sin, what would remain? Nothing. This again becomes that picture of humility, that we would recognize that we are sinful through and through, and that we would simply throw ourselves at the feet of God, begging for his mercy, just as we'll see happen in the parable later in the chapter. As the servant throws himself before his master, crushed by an impossible debt load. But before we get to that, Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep. He gives a conversation in verse 10 about guardian angels, basically, that they're in in heaven before the Father. They can, in that way, bear witness to God, 
about what's happening to his people. And at the same time, they are ready to be sent. So it's a, it's a warning against despising the people of the Lord. He does not desire any of his little ones should perish. That's 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The 99 and one sheep idea here is actually a little ridiculous if there aren't others still watching the 99. So imagine a group of shepherds, and so one of them departs, the master, the owner, to go find the one that wandered off. In such a picture, what Jesus says about rejoicing makes sense. You don't really rejoice over having your flock. There's not a lot of celebrating each day as you just go about daily business, daily routine. But now that the one has run off and you have managed to find it after a long search, now there is rejoicing, there is celebration. And so it is with the Lord celebrating us. He celebrates that we have been forgiven, that we are saved in Christ. That then transitions us to the section about forgiveness. Notice, we were just talking about one of the little ones who has wandered astray. And then we go to the brother who has sinned against you. Here is one who has wandered astray. Go and bring him back with forgiveness. It's a four-step process. And this is really like a handbook for our life together as Christians. Your brother sins against you. First step, go and tell him. Privately, just the two of you. Tell him that he hurt you. If he listens, you've gained your brother. That is, there's forgiveness had. You're reconciled again. You are the people of the Lord. That was step one. If he doesn't listen, take along one or two others, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Many people believe that to be a reference to the idea of taking two or three who have seen it, who have witnessed the original sin. But that's not what this is going for. This is Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, that every matter must have two or three witnesses to it before it can be punished. The picture here is that these one or two others are going to see the man's unrepentance. So you went and you said, you did this, it hurt me. He says, I don't care, or go away, or whatever it might be. So you bring along one or two others, you repeat the process, and he still doesn't care. Now you have two or three witnesses in the church who have seen his unrepentance, that have seen that he is a lost sheep. And so you go back to the church and you tell the church. Now you could shorthand this possibly to a pastor, but it's the whole fellowship. It's the body of Christ that gathers together in that location. So you share it. And if he still refuses to listen even to the fullness of the church, that was step three, then you cast him out. That's step four. Now, in our picture today, that would be excommunication to throw him out. That's not a process done in hatred or disgust. It's a process done in love, in hopes that he'll repent. Notice that's the whole thing. Step one, two, three, and four. The hope is he repents. And if he repents, you welcome him back with open arms. Joyfully, right? Rejoicing. That was the purpose from the get-go parable of the lost sheep right before this forgive treat him as a gentile or a tax collector verse 17 does not mean hate him which is how they viewed gentiles and tax collectors it's one outside the church what do we do for the people who are outside of the church 
and we bear witness to them of who Christ is and what Christ has done. They have severed themselves from Christ. Don't give up on them. Jesus then repeats in verse 18 what he's already said in Matthew 16, and it will also be said later in John's Gospel about basically the office of the keys, the forgiveness of sins or the retaining of sins, which is God's work, and then it's spoken through his people to one another. Notice it with verses 19 and 20, then, the connection to forgiveness, because the parable that follows this is also about forgiveness. So 19, if two, or th- if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is prayer, yes, but it's prayer by God's will, not just by whatever we want to have happen. If, you know, husband and wife agree that they want a really nice car, they pray to God, and they don't get the nice car. Well, they weren't praying for God's will to be done. They were praying for their own desires in this world. And this, again, is forgiveness. This is a picture of reconciliation, of a sheep that is lost being brought home. Pray for one another. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for reconciliation in your broken relationships. Pray for the Lord to restore. That's our picture here. That's our context. And again, verse 20, which is the best known of the chapter, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, there am I among them. What's the context? Notice it's connected to forgiveness. The idea you need two or three witnesses to basically process a charge for a crime. Well, now where you have two or three, you are the body of Christ in that place. And we can give that forgiveness to each other. Now, Peter comes before Jesus and asks the question, how often should he forgive his brother up to seven times? Peter believes here that he is doing something extraordinary. I mean, just imagine it. Your brother punches you in the face. Repents. I forgive you. The next day, he punches you in the face again. He repents. You forgive him. That's twice. And this keeps going. Four days later, he's punched you in the face now five times. In order for him to have continued to punch you in the face, you've stuck around. You've, you've been giving forgiveness. You've been trying to reconcile. You've been seeing that and trying to move forward. You have not just abandoned that relationship. Peter thinks he's doing something extraordinary. I mean, admit it ourselves. How often do we struggle to forgive the first time, let alone the second or the third or the seventh, Right? Peter's forgiveness here seems extraordinary when we actually stop and think about it. And yet, what does our Lord answer? Not seven times, but 77 times. Now, there is debate. The Greek number here is a little uh, difficult to translate. 77 or 70 times 7, which would be 490. Again, that's debated. doesn't matter either way. One of the easy pictures of this is you can't count that high. How many brothers do you have? How many neighbors do you have? How many different sins are being committed against you? You can't even keep a chart if you tried. Just forgive. Just keep on forgiving. Now, I do want to point this and connect it back to Genesis chapter 4, to Lamech, the descendant of Cain. Cain had the special seal on him that God would protect him, avenge him if somebody harmed him. Lamech says that if Cain's revenge was sevenfold, then Lamech's would be seventy-seven. It's the exact same in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament. It's the exact same 77 or 70 times 7 that it is here. Jesus seems to be, as that's the only other spot in Scripture the number shows up, 
he seems to be very intentionally connecting back to that account that man's way is to continue violence and revenge, to hold the grudges. But Christ's way is the opposite. Christ's way is to forgive always. And that's what then he tells a parable about. The man who has 10,000 talents worth of debt, a talent alone is 20 years of labor. That's 200,000 years of income. It's impossible to pay it back. And yet the man throws himself at his master's feet, begs him for more time. And the master forgives. He wipes out the debt. It's gone. This is our sin. It is an impossible burden. We cannot pay back. Unfortunately, just as this man thought he somehow could, many Christians view it that way too, that somehow they must aid God in this gift of forgiveness, that they must do enough good works to earn it or something. We can't earn it. It's a gift. The king's forgiveness here is absurd, really. And yet this is precisely what Jesus did for us on the cross. He wiped out an impossible debt, a burden that we could never have repaid. Then the servant goes out. He finds another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarius is a day's pay, so this is over three months' worth of pay. You take a typical American income of about $60,000 a year. For a quarter of a year, that's fifteen grand. This is more than fifteen grand of a debt. It's not insignificant, right? This debt matters. That kind of a loss hurts. Sin cuts destroys, tears down, ruins relationships. And yet, when that man pleads the same way he pleaded to his master, he refuses to forgive him. And the word is shared with the master, and the master orders him to be brought before him. And even though he's already wiped out his debt, all of a sudden it's back again. And he's cast into prison forever. The family conversation at this point, if someone repents for a sin they've done to us, is there ever a time we shouldn't forgive them? The answer to that question is no. Doesn't matter what the sin, doesn't matter if it's the first time, second time, seventh time, or five hundredth time, We live in the forgiveness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He has forgiven us everything. He has forgiven us an impossible load. We are to live in that forgiveness and share that forgiveness with one another.